the actual very last episode of Quite Excellent for the academic season. We've already had our finals, the grades are in, everything is done. And this is all that remains. Now, I had a conversation with poet Jose Olivares about two of his poems, which was the preceding episode. But that conversation followed with some questions that my students had for the poet. And that's where this episode fills in the gap. This conversation followed immediately after where the previous episode left off with a discussion of Ars Poetica and how my students responded to that. Our conversation includes many questions from my students that get at poetic process and details about Jose Alvarez himself, and I hope that this serves as a, a nice little end cap on a, I think, successful season of Quite Excellent. I look forward to coming back to it tomorrow. Okay, the next thing you will hear is the remainder of that conversation with the poet. Those are all the questions that my students had about those, or at least the analysis that my students had for those particular poems. I did, however, get a bunch of questions for you. Yeah, uh, please. Okay. So um, in no particular order, well, I guess I'm going to try to order them. First, I'm going to try to connect to the ones that are related to you and your writing. Okay. Um, so uh, once you ask a question related to actually both these poems, uh, this is Morgan. Morgan says, in Ars Poetica, you said through your writing, you represent survivors and their survival. Is this also true of my therapist says, make friends with your monsters? Yeah, I would think so. I think in, in that poem, I'm interested in framing a way of coming to new agreements with like my personal monsters, right? So absolutely, I'm thinking about that poem in terms of like how instead of like writing a poem in which I overcome this like negative self-image or further judge myself, you know, like be mean to myself because I have a negative self-image, like what are some other possibilities? Absolutely, I see it in the same vein. Uh, so Taylor wanted to know, what made you think that America is toxic? And the student notes that they're they're not trying to disagree, but they're trying to understand where that's coming from. Yeah, that's such a fair question. I... What I'm thinking about in this moment is my parents moved to the United States. My dad was able to get a job at a steel mill, was working full time, was able to save enough money to buy a house in the suburbs. And so we were really lucky in a sense, and, and we were able to own a house. And then what happened is that because my family moved into the neighborhood, a lot of the families that had been there for a long time began moving out. and so. Uh, what ended up happening is like the, the house that my parents bought for however much they bought it for, instead of increasing in value by the time that they ended up having to get rid of the house, the whole neighborhood was primarily Mexican American and Black Americans. And so the value of the house was way lower. You know what I mean? A fraction of what they had poured into the house. This is that white flight where like, as a neighborhood becomes more diversified in terms of its cultural ethnic identities, white people just get out. Yeah, exactly. And I always think about like, you know, I, I think about my parents and they did everything they were supposed to do, right? They bought a house, they saved up, they became, you know, they had legal status, they paid their taxes, every, everything that you could could want from a citizen in this country. Like my parents really tried their best to do. 
And yet 20 years later, the steel mills had all closed, like that industry was done. And so my dad had to hustle and find a different way to make ends meet. And this house that was supposed to be like, like something reliable that we could count on instead became like a huge drain on all of our resources, right? Like trying to salvage it. Um, well, especially because you always hear that, oh, buy, buy a house have a family. That's the American dream. Right, exactly. And and I guess what I've learned over the years is that sometimes even when you get access to some levels of the American dream, it doesn't mean that it's permanent, right? Like you can be booted from it at, at certain points. And it also, it doesn't mean that it's permanent. And it also doesn't, you might get some pieces of it, but you might not have access to all of it. And so to me, when I, when I say that America is toxic, I mean, this this idealized version of the country and the mythology of it, right? Like, I think there's great people in the United States. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I really love, you know, my family is here. There's there's so many things that I love about America, but I don't think it's helpful to pretend that that America is perfect or, I mean, the, the next line is also about Mexico, right? So I'm thinking about both sides of my identity. And it's like, it's not just about like, either of these places, right? I think what I was trying to say in those in those moments was like, it's not that there are some nations that are good and some nations that are bad. It's that everywhere I've been, there's people trying to make a better world. And oftentimes, you know, the nation state at some point is trying to block that progress, right? So here in America, if it's like, you know, we don't have health insurance all the time. We rely on GoFundMes to take care of one another or any other number of things, right? Like we, we have the gig economy to survive. Um, in Mexico, it's a whole bunch of other things. And some of them are the same and some of them are different, but it's, it's just like, it's not as simple as being like one place is good and one place is bad. It's like both of these places have their problems. And so we can't just cling to a mythology and believe that that's going to save us. We have to like really try and build something new, I think, and really active as opposed to just being like, well, I'm in America, so everything is good. Yeah, uh, and I think this is uh, this question seems to build off of that um, in terms of being active socially, politically, because uh, Shashir asks uh, regarding Ars Politica, the author mentions that just because something is art does not mean it is inherently nonviolent. And I was curious if you can explain like, what that means how should we should understand that there was there was a book that came out uh i think it was last year like we said earlier you know there's been like 20 years between last year and this year so it's hard to keep track of time um but the book was about like uh, a woman who has an affair with like a bookstore owner and it turns out that the bookstore owner is also like the head of a cartel uh, and so the head of the cartel becomes jealous and, you know, like kills the woman's husband and the woman has to flee to the United States. And so one way to look at it well, is like, well, this is a book about the Mexican American experience. So therefore, I don't, I, I apologize. So therefore, so therefore it is a good book, right? It has good politics. It is nonviolent. Or you know you could say it's representational, and so therefore it's a positive book. But another way to read it is like you know the book trades in like a lot of caricatures, and you know it's just. But the bigger problem is that it posits like the whole premise of the book is that like Mexico is a bad place 
that people need to escape from. And then America is the good place. And if you can just get there, then everything is solved, right? When, when, and so it's not nonviolent because it, it continues to reproduce this idea that, you know, that, like I said, that Mexico is bad and the United States is good, right? When, you know, the reality is that like many people who migrate to the United States continue to face different issues and problems, you know? So it, again, it's not reducible to one place is bad and one place is good, but that's, you know, one example of what I mean. Because we're talking so much about both that, that American, uh, English dominant and then uh, Mexican Spanish and those the relationship between those two identities simultaneously uh, a student was curious about uh, the previous poem we did Despecho Hour at Casa Azul Restaurante Cantina and the yeah. the choice to mix those languages up in there and not even always to contextualize it there are Spanish words in there and some members of your audience myself included are just gonna be like well I don't know what that means let's keep going so why, why yeah. that mix in that poem? Well, one, I think that's perfect. This is a poem that I wrote when I was probably after like one year of touring with my book. And one of the questions that I often got was about translation and, and you know, why I choose not to translate certain things or, you know, why, I mean, oftentimes I choose not to translate things. And so the form of this poem is, almost like a series of translations, right? Like the the question for me in the poem is like, what is despecho hour? What does it, like, what does despecho mean? Um, but again, I don't want to, the straightforward answer is also uninteresting and unhelpful. So instead of giving a straightforward answer, I'm going to play, right? Like I'm going to instead begin with, uh, the first stanza is about the sound of it, right? So the specho rhymes with the espejo. Espejo is Spanish for mirror, right? So you could look that up if you like. Um, and then, you know, crack a joke about how my brothers are ugly, but then the joke's on me because if my brothers are ugly, what does it say about me, you know? Like, uh, and so then it goes again, right? Let me try again. And this time it's, you know, this one goes out to my fan posted at the bar, pouring shots until the ceiling falls apart. You know, now instead of ex like translating this special via sound, I'm trying to translate this special via story, right? Like this is a story that is soaked in this special. Um, leading up to the last one, to the last stanza, which begins one more time for those who haven't caught on which is another story that is soaked in despecho, but it's a different type of despecho, right? In the second stanza, the heartbreak is a relationship one, right? In the last stanza, the, the heartbreak is the heartbreak of being misunderstood one way and then misunderstood a second way, right? Because people might see you as, uh, as Latinx, but you know, you you your first language is still not Spanish. Your first language is this indigenous language, right? Uh, and so then the heartbreak is moves from like the relationship to this kind of like historical heartbreak. And so that's I, I love playing with those translations because you know I I'm just not interested in doing like I think the straightforward work, forward work is easy, right? Like people can Google words they do not know, but I think that there's some interesting ways to play with, 
you know, to be a trickster of sort, right? To say, I'm going to give you the answer, but is this really the answer? Or, you know, how can I give you an answer that is an answer, but is also not an answer, right? Like, how can I, you know, and this kind of relates back to Ars Poetica, right? It's a chance to kind of exercise power in a sense. One way to write, if you're a writer of color, or if you're a writer from a marginalized background or whatever, is to offer up secrets to the dominant culture, right? But maybe we don't need to like give away all of our little jewels and treasures. Maybe there's other things we can do in that way. Yeah, uh, I found this when I when I read this, I was doing exactly that, Google Translate, Google Translate, uh, which is interesting because, um, first of all, tra the translation thing I see in both uh, here and in Ars Poetica, you're not using the language in Ars Poetica the same way, but you are, giving you those remixes. Also, interestingly, in both of them, you're asking questions in the same kind oh, of yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. But asking questions is one of my favorite things to do. And and oftentimes, whenever I ask a question, I'm often, I'm never giving a direct answer. Like even something that appears like an answer is not a real answer. Yeah, uh, but I found when I was reading that I would, I would look a word up and okay, I. I, I understand the translation version of that, but as a, a teacher of English, uh, I think about this in the way that sometimes the job kind of demands that students are given material that challenges them, especially if they're coming from a different cultural background. So they find words that they have to look up and they go, okay, I understand functionally what that word is, the denotative definition. I, I got that, but I don't understand the, the context. I don't understand the, the connotations, the richness, the, the, variety of ways in which it kind of is a synonym but isn't quite a synonym to a number of things and i recognized as i was reading that poem how many things i was missing and i just mm. I probably would never get them um and i think in that episode i actually re mentioned that uh, to my students that like if you look like me like i am a very pale person there's a lot of richness in this poem that you're gonna look at from a distance and hopefully admire it's not going to feel like it's yours. Mm. That's, you know, that, yeah, that's a very, I don't know, for me, it feels affirming in a sense, right? Because I, I do think like, that is definitely something that I, let me slow down because I, I'm getting excited. <laughs> when I wrote these poems, I was interested in this idea of translation and how it's often requested and how often, you know, we are asked to translate from, you know, countercultures, alternative cultures to mainstream cultures, right? And it's not just language translations, right? But like people who are LGBTQ are asked to translate their dating practices or whatever, their dances, whatever, their rituals, right? So it's not just language that we're asked to translate. We're, we're asked to clarify like, well, why do you eat that particular food or why this this particular spice and younger younger generations grow up with translation because they are constantly doing that for their parents yep. and that is constant too in the literal sense yeah absolutely right and so i imagine doing like a book of untranslations a book that is not aiming to to do the work of a dictionary which is you know again, straightforward and something that is already available, but it, that is attempting to kind of figure out what is almost like emotional translations, right? Like how can I, so that hopefully 
you know, even if you don't get all of the textures, you get some of the emotional texture, right? Like even in the special hour, like my hope would be that even if you didn't understand all of the play in that poem, that you still got some of the heartbreak and some of the, you know, some of the isolation, especially at the end of it, right? Yeah. So yeah, so that that's kind of like definitely one of the things that I was trying to do. Yeah, Dispatcher Hour is fantastic. Uh, there are lines in there um, that, like I said, there's words in there that I don't know, but like there are definitely like strong emotional heartbeats that are that are tangible that I really like. Um, for example, you mentioned the end of it. Uh, it, it says uh, his first language is Ixil. Uh, in the entire state of Iowa, how many people speak Ixil? And I, when I read that the first time, I actually kind of ignored the the period, which actually made it almost absurd. His first language is Ixil in the in the entire state of Iowa, which is a the idea that this is your first language here presents it as a almost impossible situation to find yourself in, which is the question that follows kind of reaffirms. Like that doesn't sound easy. And the responsibility of that you may have had that someone else may have had in helping to make it possible for, for him to interact in Iowa is enormous. And one that even as I understand some of the passions and the, the ideas and the joy, especially early on when you're talking about your brothers, there are parts of this that I, I'll, I'll just never pick up. I can't take that position. Yeah. Well, I mean, which is okay, right? I mean, that's true yeah. of all literature. You know, like I read, you know, Romeo and Juliet, and I'm not a part of like, you know, the Montagues <laughs> or the Capulets, but like I can still appreciate like a good beef. You know what I mean? Like there's still, there's still connections, even if I'm outside of that in some ways, right? I, mm -hmm. I, so for me, like, Again, like the emotional texture is what I'm, I think sometimes we can become so lost in trying to understand every single word and material that, that we forget that, you know, for me anyway, like poems are attempting to, to define the undefinable, right? Because it's hard when you're talking about emotions. Like we, we use the words for love all the time, but like, if I say the word love, I'm sure that all of your listeners immediately picture different people, different places, different objects, right? It's not like everyone immediately jumps to the image of flowers or immediately jumps to the image of roses or the image of chocolates. Like these words, they contain multitudes. And so for me, like I, I never were like I, I, I would urge readers, you know, your students, your listeners, uh, not to get bogged down on like, what is this one word, but try to figure out like, what is what is the poem attempting to reach for? Like what what kinds of emotional textures is it trying to mine? And, and to just like feel it, right? Like it doesn't, like at the end of the day, poetry is art. Like you don't necessarily look like at a great visual art and ask it like, well, tell me, you know, piece, you know, Van Gogh, like tell me about, what this composition tells me about, you know, uh, where you grew up and your economic, you know what I mean? Like we, we allow ourselves with visual art to just kind of feel it and to be in its presence. And I think with poems, we can do the same thing. We don't have to like kind of treat it like it's a lab rat and we have to like kind of dissect it and figure it, you know, take it all apart. Like part of it is just that I want people to feel it. Billy Collins talking about his students 
beating a, a poem and torturing it comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And and I think, and, and I get it, you know, because also like as a writer, that's one of the ways in which I read is to, to kind of pull it apart and see like, what are the machines at work here? But I also think, I feel like I repeat myself a lot, but I, I do think <laughs> it's important to just allow oneself to just feel it, even when we don't understand everything. Yeah, for sure. Madeline asks, does writing poetry or writing poems make you happy? And if not, what Me else personally? do you feel? Yeah, like, does it, uh, I, this is a good question, especially, I follow Danny uh, Smith on uh, uh, Twitter, and they were just talking today, like, I just wrote a bunch of poems, and they're, they're angry about it. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, like, what do you, what do you feel when you're writing? Are you like, yeah, this is a great experience for me, or man, I am dragging up some hurt. Like, whoa. I, for the most part, I feel really excited. Like the, the emotion isn't necessarily happiness that I feel, but it's a little bit of a thrill. And there's a feeling when I complete a draft that I like that feels really exciting. And is, is unlike an experience that I get from, you know, doing some of the other things that I do in my life. Um, so I don't know if writing makes me feel happy, but it, it definitely is exciting to me. Um, it gives me a thrill. I, I, I like, I'm a nerd. Like I really love playing with language. Um, some of the things that I do that make me happy. So I'm engaged. So me and my fiance will watch television. Yesterday, we just started watching a show called The Upshaws. Um, so, you know, we'll watch Netflix. Uh, I'm I'm really addicted to NBA 2K, so I'll play video games, and I'm not very good, so I lose a bunch. But you know, still still provides a type of joy. So yeah, you know, and I you know I like to read and hang out with people when that's possible and talk. So uh, all of those things are you know elements of joy in my life, and and sometimes you know there I'm able to kind of infuse that energy into the poems. But even when I write about hard things, there's still a thrill with being able to to kind of like nail the language or surprise myself or or come to some new understanding congratulations on the engagement by the way thank um, you yeah yeah it's fantastic students frequently ask where the inspiration for poetry comes from which is a huge question uh you've mentioned it a little bit especially like from your life like things you've read things you've conversations you've had things like that uh, but this is an interesting variation uh, of that question that Travis had. And he said, where does the inspiration come from to revise a poem? Do you, do you find yourself having a poem maybe on the back burner and you're like, oh, I have an idea. I got to get back to it. Like, do you feel inspiration to tinker? I love that question. And this is another question that I've never been asked. Thank you, Travis. Um, what inspires me to revise? I mean, it depends from poem to poem, right? Some of the poems, you know, some of my first drafts, I'll look at them and I'll, I'll immediately see that the issue is that they, they don't go anywhere, right? Like, you know, the first line kind of says it all. And then the rest of the poem is like attempting to find some new thing to say, but it might never get there, right? And so when I revise those types of poems, you know, Sometimes it means that I need to, instead of beginning with that moment of revelation, I need to like push it all the way down to the bottom and start over at the top and see if I can find a new way to get there, right? Part of it is figuring out the structure 
some of the poems, you know, when I first draft them, they're like charged with emotion in such a way that mm, they're they're like a, they feel effective in terms of you know maybe like having some connection to therapeutic properties, but sometimes you need distance to be able to like draw out some of the quieter textures in a poem, right? So sometimes the inspiration is being able to go back to a piece that feels charged and bring out some of the quieter textures. Um, and I mean, and this is for me, right? What, the things that I value in poetry, like I really value surprise. I value being able to uh, fit multiple textures into one poem. Like I love a poem that will surprise me with its range of emotions that has a couple different emotions that it's trying to, to hit, that moves between those different things. So sometimes all of that. And then oftentimes when I go to revise, I'm like revising mischievously. Like I'm trying to figure out where I can insert one more joke. You know what I mean? Um, in part because like, it's fun to me to do those things. And then too, because I, I just feel like jokes are a really great way to do what I was saying, right? To add a different texture to a conversation, to to add a moment of quick clarity to a, a poem that might be otherwise deep or a little more somber, right? To, mm -hmm. to bring, to remember that like all poems, regardless of how somber, right? Like I think about like thunderstorms and like flashes of lightning, right? I try to revise towards those flashes of lightning. How do I insert them into the poems? Well, I want to say I really appreciate your time. I, I started this year with a podcast, and at some point, my I have a, a really a mentor, a Terry DeBarger, another teacher from a local high school, suggested I start attempting to contact poets, and I was like, "That's stupid. Who's going to talk to a random high school teacher?" Uh, but this is phenomenal. Uh, I feel fantastic about the conversation. I love the things my students do with your work. And I, I'm glad I was able to share so much with it with you. So thank you for being here. Thank you for helping to wrap up the year for me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I want to give a big shout out to all of your students. Uh, and yeah, this is cool for me too. So, I mean, like I said, there's some of the questions that you asked and that your students asked, I hadn't been asked before. So thank you for that. <laughs>